Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. All this week, we've been celebrating our program's 10th anniversary and my final week on this show as host. It is my last show, although you'll hear me each Wednesday on The Wheelhouse with Colin McEnroe starting May 25th. Lucy Now Potential takes over as the host of Where We Live on Monday. Coming up, favorite memories from 10 years of Where We Live with some of the people who really make this program happen, our brilliant producers. But first, if you're a longtime listener, you know this voice. Hi, John. How are you? Derek from Windsor has probably called the show more often than anyone. He's also insightful and kind and always interesting. I wanted to spend some time talking today about the importance of callers to call-in radio, how they, how you, give the program texture and life that we could never dream up on our own. The problem is that with few exceptions, we never get to meet the people on the other end of the phone. That's why we invited Derek Jackson, that's his full name, in studio to tell us what he's meant to us. Derek Jackson, welcome to Where We Live. Yes, John, thanks a lot. And first, let me just say thank you for inviting me. Well, I, I'm really glad to have you here. And you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you here is because you've been such a big part of the show over the years. And I, I assume that when I, I step away from hosting the show every day, you're still going to call in all the time. But so I wanted to, to sit down and talk with you in person a little bit about um, why you listen to the, the show and, and how calling into the show is, is, is important to you. But let me ask you about you first. Yes. Where are you from originally? I am from Jamaica. I'm from a parish. As you know, Jamaica is divided up into parishes, much like America here is divided up into states. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, we are divided up into parishes. I guess it comes from the English colonies. You know, we are under English. Um, so I'm from Clarendon, and uh, that's where I was actually born. My mother was from the adjoining parish, which is Manchester. My dad from another adjoining parish. And then uh, who knows what happened. When I was born, I was born in Clarendon. (laughs) So when did you come to the United States? I came here in 1990. And and what brought you here? Well, John, it's a long story. Um, I am the last of five siblings, two brothers, two sisters, great parents. And, you know, one of the things they instill in us is hard work. You know, to be respectful, you know, have manners that go without saying. That was part of the parcel. You had to be that way. And, you know, like I said, hard working. So I went to school. Actually, I was grown up in Kingston from the country, grown up in Kingston, which is the capital of Jamaica. And uh, I was there, you know, things went pretty well. And after a while, I became an adult on my own. And, you know, starting to work, I started out doing different things like most kids, you know, getting out of school until I kind of found what was my calling, which was sales. I'm not doing that actually now, but that's really my calling card. I really love sales. As you probably can tell, I like to talk. Good talker. And I love people. (laughs) And I think those two things are compatible with, you know, if you're selling any product whatsoever. So that's really what I did most of the time in Jamaica. But, um, you know, Jamaica is a poor country. Not that everybody is poor. 
but it you you'd consider Jamaica a poor country. So survival is a main issue. You got to survive. So I was there, you know, working, lost job, got another one, you lost another one. And it's, it was like that pretty much, you know, until it came to a point where I got a job from one of the gentlemen that I used, actually used to buy things from me. Mm. When I, I lost a job and then I went to him and I applied and he took me on. But at that time, things was heading downward for him, even though he offered me a job as a sales agent. So I worked until I uh, actually I sold off everything, every stock that he had, everything basically he had in his storeroom. And, you know, at that point, I was about 35 years of age. And, you know, you start to really take a deep look inside of you. Where do I want to go? So that's when United States came in my mind. Not that I haven't thought about America in the past, but at that particular point, you know, I start to think more about America because Jamaicans, you know, they talk about us as being foreign-minded because most Jamaicans at some point in their life think about traveling, whether it's here in America or in Europe. So most Jamaicans, I would say, always think about traveling at some point in their life. So like I said, at that juncture, I decided, well, let's give it a shot go to America and see, you know, basically for an opportunity. And I must say, thank God I did come because a lot of doors has been opened up for me since I came here, which I'm very grateful for. So, so how, did you, how did you end up here? And this is one of the, the fascinating stories that I've always found from people who, who decide, you know, I'm going to leave where, where I grew up and I'm going to come to America. But then there's got to be some place in America. America is a very big place. Yes. So why why Connecticut? Why are you here? Well, I had families here that were here for a long time. Yeah. And when I came, you know, they accepted me. And, you know, I came on a visa, um, visitor's visa. But then I went to church, you know, because I, I'm... Christian from a church background, growing up that kind of way. So I went to church and, you know, visited because my family is there, church folks too. But I visited with them and, you know, until I kind of, I ran into a friend from Ghana, Africa, you know, just by coincidence. And he embodied me like a brother until this day. And um, he invited me to his church, and I went to his church, and that's where I met my wife. <laughs> it, uh, I mean, it's all happened like magic, John. I mean, it, I mean, I didn't intend to come here to get married or any of that, but it just all happened uh, like magic. And, you know, uh, we got married. I came here in 90. We got married in 91 uh, because if I hadn't I done that, then my visa would have run out, and then who knows, I might have, would have to go back home and, you know, try to come back again. Who knows what would have happened. But I was so fortunate that I met her, and, you know, we decided to get married in 91, and here I am today. My goodness. <laughs> so, That's a, it's a great story. Yes, it's, it's kind yeah. of a journey and a story together, you know. Are, are you an American citizen now? Yes, I am. When, when, did, you, when did you become a citizen? Well, I don't remember exactly when, but I did it uh, within five years of being here. Yeah. Because once I realized not becoming a citizen, there are certain benefits that you're not, you know, exposed to. Mm-hmm. So I say I am here, and since I am here, might as well, you know, make use of the opportunities. 
I probably said this when I've talked to you before, Derek, and, and I know I've said this at, at public radio conferences before. Yes. It's something I've noticed about talk radio, which is that when people come from other countries um, like like you and they decide they want to come here for opportunities and they want to be part of the American culture, mm-hmm. whenever they hear a radio program that's talking maybe about politics or something that's going to impact them, and and people are saying, Give us a call, 860-275-7266. There's, there's a much higher percentage of people who come from elsewhere mm-hmm. who will call up a radio program. And I think it has something to do a little bit with the story you just told me. That, like, you, you worked pretty hard to get here. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that you don't take for granted mm-hmm. that, you know, you have to be engaged as a citizen in America and that may be a reason that, that draws you to call up a radio show and talk to a politician and ask a question. Am I right about that, do you think? You're right. You're right. Because, you know, I, I can say, you know, sometimes I talk with people and you, you can hear all the time that, you know, we from different countries, we are so much involved with what America does, you know, because a lot of folks see America as a lifeblood of their hope because in many other countries like even Jamaica you know sometimes the opportunities that we hope for isn't really there consider Jamaica is a small country about 3.23 million people by now so uh, you can only provide for so much not to say you know America can take care of everybody mm-hmm. but as a more bigger and established country uh, there's more opportunity here. So folks, wherever they're from, and this is speaking with other folks from different countries, they always focus somewhat on America, what America does. And this is how I was being in Jamaica. I was always engaged with what happened here in America. I, I mean, I could tell you things from I was back home that happened here, that when I come here and I speak to folks here, they didn't even know, and they are from here. <laughs> so we are pretty much involved, even though we are not here, you know, talking to people when they travel to Jamaica or whatever news you can get, you know, on our here ways. Today it's much better because when I left Jamaica, there were only two radio stations. Today, uh, probably about 10. Mm. So, you know, there's much more. And with social media and, you know, Internet and all of that, people are more connected today. Yeah. yeah but, but I always love politics, always. Even f- when I was in Jamaica, the first person that really got my attention to politics, I don't know how much you know of Jamaican politics. We had in the 70s uh, the late Honorable Michael Manley. Mm-hmm. He, uh, who I consider the best prime minister in my time. He was the one that actually got me and many others involved in politics, the way how he deals with politics, really retail politics. So, you know, it, it reaches you. And for that reason, you got involved. I used to go to the political meeting, something I've never done before Michael Manley came to the forefront. So, he really got me and, like I said, many others really engage in politics involved, which I think that's how a leader should be. You should get your people involved because it's really about the country. It's not about any one person. So when, when you hear us having political conversations mm-hmm. on the show and, and, and you call up, 
what is it that spurs you into action? What what is it that makes you think I, I have to call and I have to be part of that conversation? Well, John, you know, as a citizen, whatever happened affects you one way or the other. You know, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. I mean, I look at people as one body. I, you know, I'm into the scripture. The scripture talk about the, the human parts. You know, the hand, the f- foot, or the feet, whichever. You know, the head. It's one body with different parts. So much the same. I look at everyone. I really don't see people as white, black, Hispanic, none of that. And I understand that metric. But I just see people as people, and because whatever affect you sometimes affect me too, whether you're white, black, it doesn't matter. So that's how I see people, and like I said, not might not be everything, but some things affect you, and then you want to make sure you have your voice being heard, that somebody knows that, yeah, this is hurting. So if you can address that situation, then we would like for you, because we elect you. To serve us, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So we are asking for you to serve us in a way that it really impacts us. So, you know, especially politics, when I hear politics, and again, as you said, something that really affects me, or it might not even be me, but somebody I know, I feel compelled to say something, to, to bring a listening here to, to what is happening out there. Because, let's face it, a lot of times our politician doesn't really know everything that goes on out there, even though they are <laughs> they're from, they might be the community. Yeah. So we are the one that have to bring things to their attention, you know, and therefore I feel compelled, not that I'm trying to talk on a radio. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a show, so it's not about just talking on a radio, but you want to bring attention to things that affect you out there, and hopefully, you know, some kind of change you know, will take place. Do, do you know the first thing you ever said to me on the radio? Do you know what it was? I don't recall, no. I, I remember it very well because yes. it was the first time you were in. And, <laughs> and we, we will always, you know, we talk back and forth with the producers. We always said, that guy Derek from Windsor, we got to have him back on yes. the air. <laughs> the first thing you ever said to me was during, probably during the first year we were on the air, or one of the first years, and it was one of the political seasons, and uh, we were talking about uh, a tightly contested election. And you came on and I said, uh, Derek is in Windsor, and you're on where we live. The first words you said to me was, "I am a voter." Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> and you I, went in, and you went into a speech after that. You take that very seriously, the fact that you're able to vote. Yes, because the reason why I vote is to participate in the system. Um, many Jamaicans, and I can say that without any, you know, m- m- a lot of Jamaicans don't believe in voting, and the reason why, and in some way, I can side. With, with them, they believe the system isn't doing anything for them. It's not going to matter if they vote. That's right, that, yeah. kind of, that kind of mentality. And this is something you hear from, you, from your friends yeah, and, and people you know. And I used to be yeah. like that yeah. too, yeah. John. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not just speaking about what I hear. I was one yeah. of those persons. But then, like I said, there's a lot of benefits in coming in to America here. You learn. Not that you don't learn in your country, but like I say, America is a bigger place. It's a first-world country. So you learn a lot more things. I learned that, you know, instead of saying the system doesn't do anything for me, so I'm not going to vote, I learned that, well, if you want the system to do something for you, then you got to participate. And the way how you participate is by your vote. Now, when you call into the radio show, mm-hmm. it's not the only time that people can hear you on the radio. You have your own program. Yes, so I t- do. T- tell me about the program. 
Well, uh, when I graduated from school, uh, two things came to mind. I didn't want to work for anyone, unfortunately. <laughs> that didn't hold. It doesn't work for too many of us, yes, unfortunately. Yes, yeah. but that was one thing as a young man. Yeah. It just hit me like that. I wanted to do my own business, which, of course, I have started a few didn't really hold, you know. I still never give up on that dream. And the other thing that hit me was radio. And one of the reasons why I think that I would want to get into radio is that I've always believed and feel like I want to do something to impact others. I wasn't, I, I played sports in school, but I wasn't good enough to be a coach. I never aspired to be a preacher. You know, I never aspired to be a politician, even though I love politics. And I named things like these because these are folks that impact people's life. So I saw radio as a way in which I could impact people. And it's really happening now because my program, I have dedicated listeners that Sundays I know them by name. You know, the time they call in, I can say, hey, John, and this is how often we have you know, been interacting, even though most of them that really interact have never met me. Yeah. But just through voice and the type of program that I do, you know, we build up, I call it a family. <laughs> you know, we are families. And, and what is the program? So it's, well, it's, it's on it's, Sunday it's, morning. It's a, it's a gospel show, and I wouldn't do anything else beside gospel because, as again, you will hear me interject God in a lot of what I say and basically that's how I see my life, that God has been really good to me. So, you know, I got to give credit where credit is due. It's a gospel show. It's called God, The Gospel Explosion, and it's heard every Sunday from the hours of 6 until 8. I've been doing this now nine years and going, and, you know, it's been very great. I, 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 I never regret a moment that I've really got into radio because of the impact and, you know, the impact on other people's life. I've seen a lot of benefit through doing the program. And this is this is WESU. WESU FM. Thank you for injecting of that. Of course, Jan. no, no, no. I, I, I can't leave out. <laughs> I want to get people. Letters. I yes. want to get people listening. <laughs> yes, WESU FM dot org. That's the website, and they call uh, number is eighty eight point one FM, and we are located in Middletown, forty five Broad Street, right there in Middletown. Do, yes. Do you, do you have a favorite piece of gospel music? Is you if if somebody said. What's a song that you would want to play on, on the last day you were on the air doing your show? I mean, what's a song you would play? There's so many, but there is one song by this um, artist. is called Evangelist Goburn. I actually played that last week. It's I Know Where I Am Going. I know. And that's a very great song. And, you know, if, if you're going to leave this world and you're dying and to kind of put a little lid on what you have done here, and to say, yes, I know where I am going. Because as Christian, we aspire for another life. You know, that's go without saying. Every Christian looking forward for another life. And we call a place called heaven, you know. so. But to say you know where you're going, it gives assurance that you have lived a life that you, there's no doubt in your mind that you're going where you, you know, you, 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 the life you live, you know, tell the story. It's a great song. <laughs> 
Derek, thank you so much for coming in. It was a pleasure talking with you in yes, person John. today. Yes, John. And you, we'll still be talking on the wheelhouse. I'm yes. still going to be on Wednesdays uh, every every week. So sure. give me a call sometime. Yes, and, and again, thank you for inviting me on, John. Thank you, Derek. We'll be thank talking you. to you again soon. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Derek Jackson, Derek from Windsor, on Where We Live. Thanks to all the thousands and thousands of callers that I've spoken to over the years. You have enriched my life and taught me so much. When we come back, our producers, who've also enriched my life, look back on 10 years of where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. All this week, we've been celebrating our program's 10th anniversary and also my last week on the show as host. Now, the host of a show gets all the credit. He or she is the voice you hear every day. But the host is just part of a team of incredibly curious people who spend their days and nights and weekends thinking of how to give you something interesting to listen to, something that hopefully inspires and enlightens and sometimes infuriates. Next, I'm going to talk to some of the producers of Where We Live and find out what some of their favorite moments from the show have been. They're also some of my favorite people in this world. We'll start with producer Lydia Brown. Lydia, nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Lydia, when did you start working here? I started here in December of 2013, two days after I graduated from college. Uh, so I've been here for about two and a half years. You've been here for about, it seems, it's some, somehow it seems like it's been just a few months, and sometimes it seems like you've been here for all 10 years. Yes. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure agree. to you as well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you, you were putting this together, uh, Lydia, for this last day, and, and you had asked people to bring some memories or some ideas, and you brought a story that I love. This is one of my favorite stories on Where We Live. What's the story? Well, so a little over a year ago, we had Stanley Maxwell on the program. And Stanley Maxwell, for those who don't know, is a local jam band made up of four musicians, Andy Chatfield, Mark Crino, Eric Delavecchia, and Evan Green. And these guys have been playing together for about 15 years under the name Stanley Maxwell. And I remember while they were here, John, uh, you asked them to explain how they settled on such an unusual name. Okay, so first of all, you knew this is going to be first question. Who's Stanley Maxwell? So, the Stanley Maxwell is a fictitious character, supposedly. We all went to uh, high school in Bristol, except for Evan, but we all graduated about tw exactly 20 years ago this June. And before we went off to different colleges, we went to Nantucket for a week to celebrate our departure. And one of those evenings, a gentleman wanted to camp in our backyard, and he regaled us with stories of his life. And he kept referring to, oh, you know Stanley, Stanley Maxwell, he... He owns all the windmills in San Francisco. We, we just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> we found out the next morning it wasn't so funny. He was actually a fugitive, and we allowed him the opportunity to skip bail by camping in our backyard. So <laughs> this character that we all should know, Stanley Maxwell, became the name of the group, and the windmill that he supposedly owns became our logo. 
So a few weeks after that interview aired on Where We Live, we received a really excited email from the band's drummer, Andy, uh, whose voice we actually just heard in that clip. And what he told us was that he'd been contacted by a woman up in Northampton, Massachusetts, Debbie Charon, who, along with her husband, had heard the band on WNPR and instantly connected the description of Stanley Maxwell to Debbie's father, Stanley Charon. Uh, it turns out her dad, back in the mid-1970s, helped found a Cambridge, Massachusetts-based wind power company, which later relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area. So when they heard the story about Stanley Maxwell on our show, you know, this supposedly made-up character, they <laughs> said, no, 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 this is actually a real guy. It's just that his name is not Stanley Maxwell. It's Stanley Charon. And of course, when they told the band, everyone got really excited and Debbie and the musicians ended up working out a date when they could all meet at the assisted living facility where Stanley Charon now lives. And they were kind enough to invite me along. I got to tag along and document the whole experience. And I just have to say, you know, watching the band meet their namesake was cool for a lot of reasons. But uh, more than anything, it was a really great example, I think, of the role this show has played in and continues to play in bringing people together, you know, whether it's here in the studio or out there in the real world. Um, and it's such a wonderful feeling knowing that, you know, as a producer, I've been able to help, you know, facilitate some of those connections. And, and I'm so glad you brought that story because those connections are so amazing. And we connect with people every single day. And then they connect with others. I'm constantly getting Facebook messages that people have found everything from their new best friend to their therapist because they listened to our program. And right. there's something kind of magical about that. I love that story, Lydia. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you've done for the program. I truly appreciate it. And you, moving forward with Lucy and Alpothantial, you guys are going to do great things on Where We Live. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Now, I want to turn to Betsy Kaplan. Betsy Kaplan has worked with our program for, for years. She's now the mastermind behind the Colin McEnroe show, but you've produced many, many, many shows for us, uh, Betsy, over the years. It's so good to see you. When, when did you start Thank working you. here? I started here in September of 2011, so it's yeah. been almost five years. It's been almost five years. My yeah. goodness. It's, yes. Time does fly, doesn't time, it? Time, well, most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. So what would you bring us? So I, I am going to tell you a little bit about a story about 1996, which, which was one of my favorite shows that I did with you. Oh. So I was still freelancing. I was freelancing for both you and Colin, sort of trying to go back and forth between the two shows. And I produced this show that started as an idea about how the cicadas were coming back after 17 years away. It was 2013. And as I, you know, I came to the weekly meeting, like I usually did, all excited about this idea, thinking everyone was going to love it just as much as I loved it. <laughs> but as often happens, um, Patrick Scale had the same idea and was planning to produce a show about this same idea for Colin. So you and the group sort of helped me form this new idea, but it ended up morphing into something completely different. And you just sort of out of the blue popped out and said, you know what I want to hear about? I want to hear about what else happened in 1996. So, <laughs> so in this show, I kind of hit a point where I felt like I had amassed a useless, I mean, a ton of useless information. I had no idea how to connect it into a cohesive narrative at all. But everybody else seemed excited about it. Everybody I told, whether my friends at home or in here, had an idea of how they wanted the show to go and what they wanted to talk about. I remember Samaya Hernandez, who was at the time also yeah. producing, freelance producing. All she wanted to hear about was fashion from 1996. And everybody's sort of yelling <laughs> ideas about me. And I'm thinking, I don't know what to do with any of this information. At the time, in 1996, I had three little kids at home. So I hadn't paid attention to much culture from those years. I had three kids, very energetic, under the age of six. It, it was different for you than it was for me, I suppose. Yeah. I missed a lot of culture. I barely got out of the house. Yeah. But um, it was one of the funnest shows I've produced for you. 
everything came together. The guests were great. The calls were coming in, tweets from people all over the place wanting to share their memories of 1996 with you. It was just a great morning, and it didn't hurt that after the show you gave me a big high five. I just loved it. <laughs> best of you the best. Thank you so much for bringing that. You're welcome. Um, I, I, I want to turn now to uh, another producer who's been working here for quite some time. And, um, well, t- Tucker Ives, y- you have been working here off and on for how long now? I started interning here in 2009, and uh, you hired me pretty much right out of the radio womb in uh, 2011. <laughs> so Tucker was hanging around here as an intern forever and ever and ever. So it's, it does seem like you've been here for a long time, 2009, yeah. My, yeah. my goodness. So we have produced... Just a lot of radio together. What's the memory you want to bring us? So this is uh, definitely from probably the darkest week in our show and in Connecticut's history, and that was uh, the week of Newtown. And it was just generally very challenging on many different levels emotionally and just trying to have conversations that were in some way helpful. So we talked about guns. We talked about the immediate news. We talked about the victims. We talked mental health. And then we got the announcement from Governor Malloy that uh, on the one-week anniversary, uh, there would be a ringing of church bells, 26 church bells uh, throughout the state and uh, various churches and other places of worship were asked to do something to commemorate this. So the tragedy happened around 9.30, so in the middle of our show and we were thinking I – th- I think it was uh, Jeff Cohen, uh, our re- reporter and the lead reporter on the ground at the time. I, I remember him just kind of throwing out the idea like what about just a, an hour of, of listening? So within a few days, um, we decided to pull together musicians. Um, we touched base with a church down the road from us at the Asylum Hill Congregational Church and a lot of our job has to do with – coordinating schedules and making making things work and trying to work with different people. Not all of the time they're able to join us at a certain time and uh, come up to the Hartford studio. But for this, every single person that we had approached, whether it was a musician, whether it was the church, we barely had to ask the question. We just had to say, hey, we kind of want to do this thing. And before we even hmm. finish the sentence, they're like, we're in. Yeah. We're in. So – uh, we put together a, a live concert with uh, friends of Jimmy Green, whose uh, daughter was one of the victims, and it turned into, I think, just exactly what we needed. And it was a way, personally, um, it served as a distraction, I think, in some ways for us, so that we could continue to focus on doing our jobs and gave us something to kind of take our mind off of, off of the pain at the time. And it turned into just, I think, probably the highlight of my radio career. And I don't think that it, it's going to be difficult to, to yeah. top that. And we were fortunate enough to be in the church. So we had great access to the bells and uh, they queued it up for us. And then coming out of the bells, we heard from uh, Noah Behrman, uh, the great jazz pianist who uh, – performed this little light of mine, uh, partially in honor of the victims and his friend uh, Jimmy's daughter. Let's listen to a little bit of that.
That's Noah Behrman playing This Little Light of Mine at the Asylum Hill Congregational Church one week after the Newtown shootings at a live concert produced by Tucker Ives for Where We Live. When we come back, more memories as we celebrate 10 years of Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. All this week, we've been celebrating our show's 10th anniversary, and it's also my last week on this show as host. Lucy Nalpotential will be here on Monday. We're talking with the producers who make my job so easy, the people who really make the program happen. I want to thank someone who's often on the other side of the glass from me, Kyone Wolf. She makes me sound good every day, and somehow her photos of me even make me look okay. Kyone, thank you for everything. A few years into the life of where we live, the show really found its stride. I was on a team with Katie Talarski, who you'll hear from in a minute, and Libby Kahn. As a trio, we figured out how to make a radio show that actually really worked. Libby left where we live and became Libby Franklin. She produced a show a lot like ours at St. Louis Public Radio and then went on to Talk of the Nation at NPR. That show was a model for us in so many ways. And I am both sad and proud that Libby was on the last production team for that landmark program. Now she puts on incredible events for the Aspen Ideas Festival in Washington, D.C. Good to talk to you again, Libby. Hey, John. Good to talk to you. So are you going to share a memory with us of your time on the program, Libby? Well, I am. (laughs) But first, maybe I'm further removed a little bit. I'm about to get mushy. Um, (laughs) Because when I think about my time with where we live, what really stands out to me, actually, I remember my last day there, and I remember leaving basically on my way out of the building. And I remember Colin McEnroe pulled me aside and was basically like, you know, best wishes, kid, but you're never going to find a team like this again. And you're never going to have this kind of fun working on something else. And I think even in that moment, without the benefit of hindsight, I knew that to be true. And I, and I felt that to be true. Um, and so that's the main thing that sticks out about when I think about John's era on where we live is that it's just, it's so much more than a show and so much more than a job for so many of us. And I know it is um, for John too. So that's really the, my, sort of my biggest memory. But when I think about specific shows and it's a little detailed or foggy, but maybe <laughs> it's, it's just my personality maybe, but what stands out to me are some of the disasters or near disasters. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I hang on to. So I was remembering, and John, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong on some of these details, but I remember being, I think we were at the hygienic in new London, uh-huh. maybe yes. for a remote show. Yes. And I'm sure you know, you guys have done dozens and dozens of remote shows since then. And so it's a well-oiled machine and nothing like this ever happens anymore. <laughs> but that morning, I remember it was raining cats and dogs and we're, we're all set up. We're ready to go. We've got a live audience sitting there in the gallery. We've got about five minutes to air and we completely lose our connection with the station. We lose our internet. 
and we can't talk to Jean back at the station, and we're not getting any signals to or from. We've got about five minutes to go. And I don't exactly know how we wiggled out of the out of that pickle. I think it had something to do with intern Joe <laughs> Dupnik. Joe Dupnik, yes. Basically scaling the building in the rain, I think, <laughs> with like 100 feet of Ethernet cable, maybe breaking and entering somewhere <laughs> to get some residential signal from up from a, an apartment upstairs that and all that all sounds actually pretty pretty close to the truth like, <laughs> and, and here's john you know right in the center of the storm as always like cool as a cucumber i think we got hooked up with about 30 seconds to spare and we go in the air and you know i'm sure that like you know listeners had no idea about the chaos um or the duct tape and <laughs> That's the magic of radio, right? That's the that's what makes it so fun, and it was that was just one of many adventures that we had together. Um, but for some reason, that one sticks out in my mind. Maybe it was just such a close call, but we pulled it out. Oh, it, it, there was, <clears throat> there were, and there have been so many close calls, Libby, and it's it's amazing <laughs> that that we literally are able to put the program on sometimes when we go out into the field. But I always. I always enjoyed those so much, mostly because we got to take a road trip. We'd all go out and we'd have drinks together. We'd have bagels and we'd have a lot of fun. And, and you know, sometimes the show would work out exactly as we planned. And sometimes it completely didn't. But, no, that was a, that was a good one. Yes, uh, Joe Dupnik, the, the intern, I, I think Jonathan McNichol was there, too. And they were throwing cables to each other, trying to make sure that we we're actually able to, to, to stay on the air. Oh my God. John, can I just jump in? I told yeah. I told Libby that this was uh, that I had put this together as well. But there are so many little bloopers and stuff that never make it onto air. A lot of times, if we do reruns, we've got to uh, record with you. And I think the one of the most enjoyable parts for us as we edit these is uh, going back and. Uh, listening to the stuff that doesn't uh, make it onto air. Kion, can you play this? Hear my stomach? It's kind of funny. I probably should go get some coffee. Here we go. Um, I'm not in good voice today. We'll be right back. Okay, I think it's ready. This hour, it's a roundtable. This hour, why do we say this hour? Who's doing this? Why are we writing it this way? Who's doing this to me? I know who it is. Why am I asking? There's no questions here. It's just answers. Yeah, boom. Onions. Right? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yep. So those are some of the uh, things that we hear from John. Uh, and actually, other than uh, other than the Iron Man cover, yeah. all of those come from within the last couple months. Yeah, probably. So <laughs> it's not even necessarily a best of. Th- thank you, by the way, for, for cleaning that up. The, uh, the the folks at WMP are very happy that we're not running afoul of the FCC. Thank, thank you for that. Um, okay, so so finally, I want to turn to to um, one last producer here in our, in our trip down memory lane. Um, we, I've been asking people when they started at the at the station. Uh, I actually know the date that Katie Solarski started here. It was uh, June twenty sixth uh, of two thousand six. We had just started the program. I was five years old. And <laughs> you were five years old, <laughs> and you and you came here uh, to be an intern. And you had just graduated from the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. Do I have all this right? That's correct. Yeah, I had graduated from the Salt Institute, and I had studied. Documentary radio and had no job and no idea how I was going to make money off of that. So I moved in with my grandmother back home in Connecticut and got an internship at WNPR because I felt like if I was going to make money, I had to do something uh, probably in a newsroom. 
And that was right when Where We Live started. So that was good timing on my part. Yeah, I, I, I have often said, said to people, I remember that day because that, that was the official, in my mind, start of Where We Live because Katie and I have been working on the program basically since that day. Um, I, I do, before I, 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 I turn things over to you, Katie, for a second, mm-hmm. I do want to say that in the, in the days leading up to that, I'd been working on the show with uh, Diane Orson, uh, who's our news director now and longtime uh, reporter and, and friend of mine who had for many years produced the, um, the Faith Middleton show. And so she was the only one in the whole station who really knew what it was, what it was like to produce a daily show. So sh- she taught me an awful lot. George Goodrich was the technical producer, uh, and George uh, was running the board and uh, making sure everything was working okay. And Yvette Cook, uh, who worked with us for years, was one of our first producers. But when you came on to the show, Katie, and you started working with me, it was like, to me, the official start of the program. And so I will always look back at that at that day fondly. Yeah, that was. those were great times. I think we were literally making it up every single day as we went along. And there would be, you know, there would be days when it was like 5 o'clock and we still didn't have a show for the next day. And you and I would be sitting across from each other like, who can we call in California? They still have a few more hours. We were really scrambling for some of those shows, but it's been amazing just to be a part of the show growing and becoming just actually something that's, you know, a really great resource for Connecticut residents and just, you know, one of the what I think is the best local talk uh, programs in the country. Well, so, okay, so did you bring us a a memory, Katie? Yeah, I did. So I was so glad that Libby um, brought up Shoeless Joe Dubnik because he was legendary, the intern. He literally, like, took off his shoes and, like, scaled the wall and got the neighbor's um, internet connection for us for that show. So we called him Shoeless Joe Dubnik for, you know, the rest of his tenure here. Um, but I yeah, definitely want to talk about uh, where things go wrong on the show. For 10 years, I, it's so surprising to me that more things haven't gone wrong or more guests just haven't showed up or, you know, we have a lot of technical issues sometimes with the phone lines. But there's one show in particular that just stands out in my mind and I've sort of blocked it out. So maybe Tucker might need to like fill in a couple, uh, you know, some of the spaces here because um, – it's it was so traumatic and hilarious, um, but it was a show on sharks, I believe. Um, and we were, you know, it's one of those shows that's sort of a fish in a barrel show, um, where we just, you know, um, have the guests lined up, and it's going to be a fun show, and everything's going to go smoothly. And it was like every single thing that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, we lost all of our callers. Um, I don't think we had anyone in studio, and. Um, I just remember this moment where John was to- – and John is always such a professional on the air. And so he just, like, broke down. And he started laughing hysterically. And then I was in the control room, and I started laughing hysterically. And literally, like, we were – I think you were resetting or we were coming back from a break. And we had no guests on the air. And it wasn't like a show – like a political show that you could sort of, like, BS your way – through you know it was definitely you know you were sort of like floundering if you will um so i know that we have the tape i haven't listened to this in a while so i'm a little bit nervous but um let's let's listen to this moment that was on live the live air this is where we live (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) this usually doesn't happen um, coming up on tomorrow's show, we'll, we'll see if it gets better. A new PBS film, Journey uh, of the Universe, invites viewers. <laughs> Here's what's happening. Oh, my God. Uh, 
periodically we have technical issues in the show. <laughs> and today nothing's going right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to first of all tell you what's on tomorrow's show. A new PBS film called Journey of the Universe invites viewers to become travelers on a journey that explores the origins of the universe, the emergence of life, and the rise of humans. We're going to talk to producer Mary Evelyn Tucker about the human connection with the Earth and the cosmos. And we'll talk to a Fairfield University professor who got a grant to study chaos theory, which I think I know something about. Uh, Could the gentle flap of a butterfly wing in China cause a public radio program to completely fail in Connecticut? We can find out tomorrow where we live on air and online. Today we're trying to talk about sustainable fisheries in the program. Um, we had Bill Leggett from uh, Kingston, Ontario. He's a professor emeritus in the Department of Biology at Queen's University there. Hopefully he will have, uh, we will have him back on the line in just a moment. Uh, we now have Eric Schultz, who's an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut. Eric, I pray that you're there. Good morning, John. Ah, this is fun, I'm, isn't it? John, I'm having a wonderful time. Actually, I mean, you think this is just... Okay. Oh my God! Can I can I jump in, Katie? Because I, I was the producer of this, and this was within the first few months that I was here, and this was I thought career ending. This was like <laughs> the end of my job. I ran out into the newsroom, and I saw Ray Hardman, who was the morning edition host at that time, staring at the radio with their jaws <laughs> open because they have never seen this from John before. Yeah, that I think that was my favorite part. It was like this real human sort of breakdown moment for you, John, and like that never I mean it hasn't happened since as far as you know, as far as I know. Um and it was just hilarious and just like horrifying at the same time. Well, I I will say one of the things that Katie taught me uh, as a great executive producer does um is that every once in a while it's it's important to let the curtain down and to actually let people see who you are and let people see that things aren't going right because a lot of stuff doesn't go right behind the scenes at a radio show. Mm-hmm. But um, because of the people that I'm talking to here and because of so many other people who are producers and engineers and interns and reporters uh, and executives at this company uh, who've made this possible – Things go right. Things go right almost all the time. And so when they go a little bit wrong, I think it's okay to, to laugh a little bit. Um, I want to thank you guys for bringing all these, these stories to us. Uh, Katie, I just want to say quickly because we weren't on the air uh, in time to say this. Congratulations on Hadel Gabrielle Galvin, your brand-new baby girl, uh, just a few, weeks, a few weeks old. We're so glad to have her in the Where We Live family. Thank you so much. And and to all of my friends, Libby Franklin. Libby, thank you so much for spending some time with us again. Thanks for everything, John. And thanks to Tucker Ives and to Betsy Kaplan and Liddy Brown. I truly, I love you all. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. John. Thanks. The song you're hearing now is called Last Train Home, and it's by guitarist Pat Metheny. It's what was playing the last time I walked away from something that I loved this much. It was at my first radio job at WDUQ in Pittsburgh. That's my hometown, as you probably know. I hosted news and jazz, and I felt like I could do that job forever. But I decided to move up to Boston to get married and to try something new and scary with my career. Now, a few years later, I ended up here in Connecticut, and I hated it at first. I did not understand its rhythms or its people. It felt like a place that I'd be for as short a time as I possibly could. And that was in 1992. 
I love where we live. I love the people and the places and the confounding difficulty of Connecticut at times. I love the challenge of making a community every day, and I love doing this live on the radio with you. That's why I'm not going anywhere. I'm just turning the microphone over to a fellow traveler, someone even more curious about how to make this work than I am. I have loved talking to you every day at nine. I've loved meeting the fascinating people who sit next to me and tell me their stories. And I've really loved working with the people you just heard from, the producers, and countless more I can't name right now. I want to thank you, Connecticut. I want to thank you for giving me the space to say every day, this is where we live.